Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, pro um, not progress. What? Media, culture, and what? Politics. Politics. Right, right. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. What's up? Hi, everybody. Hello. So, I know. We said we'd be back in January, and then that just did not happen. And we offer no excuses, explanations, or apologies. So, how are you two? <laughs> I'm great. Jason's great. Jason's birthday is tomorrow. So, happy well, birthday, Well, thank you Jason. for remembering. Of course I remember. What? International Women's Day. International wow. Women's Day and your birthday. Coincidence? And the day the Bolsheviks started revolting in St. Petersburg. That feels more appropriate. <laughs> but I'm not God's gift to women? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Oh my gosh. It's been a really long time. Uh, I want to just do a quick round table what everyone's been up to. Trisha just came back from a fabulous vacation in Dubai. If you don't follow Trisha on Instagram, you should because uh, <laughs> the pictures were out of control. What was it like? See, Dubai is such a weird thing, right? Because it's, it's totally Muslim and it wants to appeal to the West. Like what, what was that conflict like on the ground? Actually, it's not a conflict at all. Um, really? I, because I think um, it's a really essentially a man-made tourist escape, right? Their biggest industry is tourism. So they have curated experiences for tourists that don't interrupt their, their religiosity in any way, shape, or form. You can have alcohol in hotels, you can have, um, you know what I mean? Like you can, you can dress a certain way in tourist areas. But if you go into, say, a mosque, you have to um, be more modest in your dress. So they, they manage, they balance that quite well in the sense like if you're in a very tourist heavy plate area, I couldn't really essentially tell the difference between being in Dubai and being in sort of like down, downtown San Francisco, um, not San Francisco, probably downtown Santa Monica, like when I was at the Dubai Marina or something like that. Was so this I straight up vacation, Trisha, or was there a work component? Straight up vacation. I okay. had um I had put it in the back. I put it on my list of things to do because um there's a tennis tournament there. So, but you know it's so funny. I had a whole come to Jesus moment that you asked me about that, Jason, because I was like, how do I want to do Dubai? Because lots of people have lots of conflicts about Dubai. They really recognize the extreme sort of wealth of like the expats and the kinds of things that tourists can do there, and then they think about a little bit of sort of the poverty of the actual people who are working there. Um, which are essentially um, mostly Indians, Pakistan, folks from Pakistan and um, Southeast Asians. They're the like, they do the lion's share of the labor because original sort of citizens of Dubai who are Emiratis, they don't necessarily have to work. So there was this real tension in me about like, oh, how do I observe that like dichotomy for myself? But I was like, listen. I see the images of Dubai and I want to do that Dubai. Let me do the Dubai that they are selling me and let me just go hard for it. And that's exactly what I did. I was Yeah, it looks like, I mean, it looks eight, like you eight, had a, eight nights an, and an nights. absolute fabulous time. Eight nights is a long time for a vacation. 
Jason, what have you been up to? I mean, I'm assuming because you have children, you haven't been anywhere, yes? Yeah, no extravagant <clears throat> vacations at all. Um, <laughs> I've just I've just been doing my thing, but um, but I, things are great. Um, this will sound, and I've probably referred to this before, and it'll sound very kind of suburban dad, but um, you know, my son for many years was just not interested in sports, and he's suddenly gotten very interested in soccer, and he's getting better like every game. He's really into it. My daughter just got called up for a travel team, so like soccer is very exciting in my house now, and um, yeah, I don't have anything to point to, just but things are are humming along. They're very good. Well, that's pretty great. You're raising good citizens who play Try soccer. Me. Weird. Thing. <laughs> yeah. So we're recording on a Saturday. How are you even here? Should you be at a soccer game somewhere? Isn't that how that works? I have. I will be leaving around two thirty in a couple hours from my house to go to a soccer tournament. My son is in, and this is this is like a rare blessing. My daughter, her team does pickup games, and it will be at the same place, which is like, oh my god, the kids' activities are in the same place. Totally coincidentally, it's beautiful. So I will be leaving in a couple hours for that. The joys of suburban dad. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. We need the suburban dad uh, perspective on this show because yeah, usually really you, just, you just get like you know the single Black American living their goddamn right. life, like flitting all over the world, yeah. loving our lives. It's good we have it. a counterpoint, Jason. Yeah, and the white suburban dad voice is just missing from our societies. I'm um, here to, to provide it. Sure. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I haven't been to Dubai, but I was in Seattle recently. Same uh, thing. Same <laughs> yeah, it's roughly the same thing. Just uh, Dubai when I, when I got, coronavirus is Seattle. <laughs> when I got there, there were zero deaths in America because of coronavirus. When I left two days later, there were six. So coincidence? Don't mess with me. Oh uh, my gosh. I don't <laughs> even think that is a that is a thing you want. <laughs> I don't even think that is it. Oh I mean, do you, do you honestly, do you think though, do you think that there's going to be a moment where we go before and after? Well, I want to talk about this. I, I want to introduce this as a topic. Okay. Let's talk about the coronavirus. Because I think when, first of all, a couple of things um, that I just want to put out there for the, the public who's listening to this. A coronavirus is a family of viruses, right? Yeah. Upper respiratory infective viruses. So the flu is a type of coronavirus. Like there are other coronaviruses. So when we say coronavirus, it's actually super nonspecific. This particular strain is called COVID-19. Yeah. Um, the 19 referring to 2019 when it was observed and it proliferated. So uh, so what I wanna say about this is that it, when, it, when it started off in China, there, there was a lot of like, oh, well, what's gonna happen? Is this gonna be a big deal? A lot of people said it's going to be a big deal. A lot of people said it was going to be a, wasn't going to be a big deal. And information got out. Some of it was correct. Some of it was not correct. At the end of the day, now we seem to have a pandemic situation where it is all over the globe. It's popping up. Amazon ran out of Purell. I know. It's really ran out. And, then, cannot, and then someone's get. trying to resell it. Resell it. <laughs> yes, for like $50, which capitalism, I mean, what else are you supposed to do? In any case, now wait. Does it, Purell's antibacterial? Does it really protect you from the coronavirus? Well, this is the thing: is that the coronavirus, the coronavirus, COVID nineteen, is it's similar to the flu, right? Um, they're trying to understand if it spreads exactly the same way. The latest data is that it's not as communicable as the flu, and it's not 
as deadly as the flu, which people are taking to mean that, oh, it's not a big deal. But what you forget is that we a flu vaccine exists. And so that knocks out 40 to 60% of the cases of the flu that would exist amongst people who get the vaccine. This is a separate kind of virus for which there is no vaccine. So even if it's less deadly, it's possible over time that it could kill as many or more people than the flu, which we have under control. Anyway, I would just love to hear from you too, like what your thoughts are about either the public's reaction to the information misinformation they're having, to the government's handling and mishandling of this, and whether you think this is a big deal. Like, should we start like Mad Maxing it? What do you think? I think we need to treat it as a big deal. Maybe I'll oh, say let's it also define way. big deal. When you say uh, just <laughs> when both of you speak, like define what I knew I threw it out, but can you just define what you mean by big deal? I mean, let me start by saying I have no expertise here, so this I will admit is is largely speculative and irrational, but. Okay, uh, just, now <laughs> you've lost the audience. <laughs> yeah, now that I've just built my credibility, let me share with you my very informed opinion. Anyway. It, it seems like something we should really pay attention to, because even though it seems not as deadly as the flu, and even though, you know, the numbers are are low compared to, you know, lots of other things, like, we, as you said, we don't have a vaccine for it. We're living in an age where we come into contact with people a lot, and, you know, the fact that people live in different countries barely matters when people are on cruise ships together and airplanes together and traveling all over the world. I think we need to treat it as a big deal. I'm largely encouraged, like, looking internationally at how it seems like countries and international organizations are treating it as a big deal. I do think, you know, it's, it is really just awful that the CDC would fumble the first thing out of the gate to respond. I, I do think this will this is a real test for, you know, you have these countries with nationalized health care that are much better equipped to respond. Um, and also, just to be honest for a second, you have countries with much more autocracy that are much more equipped to respond to this kind of thing. I mean, China can just say, everybody stay home, and people really do because there are real consequences for that kind of thing. Um, it's going to be a real test of our ability, our country, with the fragmented government structure we have, and then also with the current administration, like whether we can respond to this kind of thing. I think it I know this was not your question. I, I mean, I don't think this is going to end the world or end the world as we know it, but it does, again, seem like something we need to take very seriously and respond seriously. I do think it's going to be interesting in a, a year from now whether this creates cracks in people – well, I guess a year will be too long. But like w w whether this creates cracks in some people's confidence in the administration, that some people who have confidence – I mean, you look at China where at least the perception is there's typically confidence in the effectiveness of that government. And now there's actually starting to be rumblings. Uh, now, obviously, it's much bigger and, and uh, far-reaching there right now. But it's fascinating to see, like, actually people are speaking out against their government in China over their handling of this. Um, that That's really interesting to me. And again, it's it's. I just think it's going to test some interesting things about our country. So I don't think it's going to end the world, but I do think it's significant and we should pay close attention to it. Trisha. You know, I came home and I felt a little bit funky and I went to the hospital. Um, I went to see my doctor because I had been traveling for three weeks. That's the interesting thing about travel is the intimacy of travel is as you start to look about how this disease potentially um, gets transferred, which is um, the, the, um, the virus can live on surfaces. Part of the reason why 
antibacterial and, and wiping down things and putting on gloves is important is the notion that this is transferred through droplets. And droplets that then fall on the surface can live there for several days. And oh then my if God. You, yes, and then if you touch the surface and put it to any open part of your body, that's how the transfer can happen. And so imagine all of the potential surfaces that this transfer can happen. And so the idea too is that if you sneeze, sneeze into something that's disposable so you can throw it away. Don't sneeze, sneeze on your clothes because it can live on your clothes as well. So think about travel and think about um, airplanes and think about people sneezing on a, on a seat and, that, you know, and all of those kinds of things, which is why it has been, I think, so it's spreading so rapidly. And so obviously, so I went to the doctor and I, I, I declared that I was traveling and that was dismissed. And they outright. tackled you to the ground and dragged no. you like. ET style into quarantine? Not at all. They dismissed it outright and said, well, this is wow. not for you because you are of a certain, you're not age, vulnerable this way. I'm like, but the biggest qualifier across the board has been travel. Right? Well, that's so, like, transmitted. Why aren't they concerned that about that? That feels like mishandling. Yeah. You. Exactly. Well, this is the thing, but you know, but then once you do, you, once you dig a little bit deeper, you realize that part of the reason why they, I think, can't go very deeply is they realize that they don't have access to um, test kits. And because they don't have access to test kits, I think they have to be very circumspect about who they're going to identify. If I had said I'd been to China, I think that has been the traditional line for the administration right now around testing is if mentioned China, that seems to be the alert. But we now know that it's beyond China. It's, be, it's all of it's many other regions. And so it was interesting to see that the travel thing barely raised the bar. But then I realized when I was doing a little bit more research that part of it is because um, we have um, we don't have enough testing kits. And so that made me think about really what I've been struck by is that if we had more. I think Americans, America's confidence, Americans confidence in their government and its structures is at an all-time low. And so I actually believe that that is going to make the virus go faster because of that lack of trust. And because and also and the only way for us to attack that I think is to potentially have a completely independent body that just speaks about the virus. So but but for the moment what we've been having is we've been having the president speak about it he's been the authoritative voice on it for now and he shouldn't be i mean and not regardless of whether you agreed with him or not he just shouldn't be you should have someone that is like i'm a scientist this is what i study this is what this is i'm i'm communicating with other countries we're tracking the virus this is our profile probably should be the team at um johns hopkins actually who's tracking the virus across the world but one of the things that's so fascinating is i when they posted that they were doing this Every single person said the only part of this map that we can't trust is the U.S. map. Imagine saying that. But this is a real life or death moment. And the stakes are so, the stakes are very clear here. And so to me, I think part of why we see people closing, closing um, concerts and doing all this stuff is because of a lack of a trust in our institutions. If you trusted at a base, the healthcare system was rigorous enough to respond I don't think you close South by Southwest. I don't think you cancel conferences. I mean, I just don't think you would do that. But we're on our own on some level, I think. 
And I, I think that's how people have been responding. So I feel as you, you talk about lack of trust, I think the lack of adequate information dispersal goes yep. hand in hand with that. Because, you know, one of the first things that the president did was to act a lot more like China, right? In that he, he uh, got the vice president uh, to be the coronavirus czar and barred anyone from dispensing information to the public that didn't come through the vice president first. That kind of that kind of authoritativeness in this situation, I, I, I can't perceive why that is a good response to this. On top of that, the president spent, you know, he spent no time rushing to politicize this, saying that, oh, the Democrats are making a big deal about this. They're trying to take me down, making the coronavirus about him. Now, this is the moment, right? This is this is the moment in, you know, this is the moment in the science fiction alternate history where civilizations collapse, right? We've gotten to this point where we have created these information systems which we cannot trust, we've elected a clown, and now something that doesn't care about borders, race, religion, or politics is ravaging. And you know what's gonna kill us? The president being unable to say that this is deadly. In other words, he's and, and what he's saying is like, this isn't a big deal. And telling people that it's not a big deal will definitely result in deaths. I'm not saying widespread deaths, like Jason, I don't think it's the end of the world, but someone is going to die. Some older conservative Republican is going to die because they heard the president say it's not a big deal. And they're like, okay. And they're going around shaking people's hands and letting people spit in their mouths or whatever the hell. Um, and I think it, it's the information breakdown that I think is really troubling. And when we look back on this in 10 years, hopefully when we're more sober in 10 years, when we look back on this, we're going to we're going to really scrutinize that and regret it. I mean, the most noteworthy thing is this idea of both America first, going it alone, and the fact that we are in a global world, right? And I think the the first instance of going of America first and why this was such a faulty policy, at least in this instance, is not using the the World Health Organization's tests. They had developed it. They were ahead of the game. And since January, they could have packaged a test and sent it to the United States. We decided we were going to develop our own diagnostic tool. And we did a poor job with it. And now there's a question mm -hmm. about whether it is actually um, accurate and all of those things. And I'm like, like it, that to me makes no sense. Like, this is a global disease. People have already done the work. Why go on our own and recreate something when the research, like that's the nature of research, right? Is you build on what's been done before. And the crazy part about this, and Jason, I, I swear I'm going to get to you, but the crazy part about this is that this situation has made people more sure that closed borders are the way to go, like, yep. you know, that anti-globalist thinking. And I'm like, if anything, this should show you that you cannot bail out your side of the boat. Totally. <laughs> you know what I mean? But okay. somehow people aren't getting that message. Jay? I was just going to ask you to whether you've stopped shaking hands i you know to be honest i i shook someone's hand yesterday and immediately afterwards i was like oh <laughs> i gotta get to the bathroom to wash it uh i work at a university with students i i make it a point to never touch the students ever anyway um because i work in social work it's a lot of female students 
we can talk about that. But just I just never touch any student ever to handshake or so. Um, I don't know if my practices have changed so much at my work because um, you weren't shaking hands much. Before. Yeah, because I was I was never you know never I don't shake hands I don't touch shoulders I don't touch students. So I mean I tried. Listen, yesterday was a practice of like living in a coronavirus world. I wore a mask yesterday. I, have, I ended up having a mask that is apparently a mask that most people want but can't have find right now okay bragging sure no not even bragging i, I, just, you know what? I, was I just, get the high-end masks no no not even like but what you i want to be monchi. no i meant i mentioned it only to say that the mask is really uncomfortable like it's a mask that everybody wants yeah. it's like some n95 something and i'm like i put it on it also doesn't work well no 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 it does that's actually the one that the medical I, I don't know what you mean by not work. Okay. But masks are meant for people who are sick, so that yeah, yes. so you don't transmit. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't so stop was... you from catching it if you're healthy, which is no, what no, I'm no, saying. No, 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 no. I, I'm not wearing it to stop. I'm wearing it to help other people, so that when I cough, exactly, they, stuff doesn't get to them. That's, That's what I mean. People yeah. think it it protects them from the virus. I'm like, no, it protects you from transmitting it. It's yes, not that's the way what, around. And anyway. I was unsure, and I was unsure. But it's clear. It's good to clarify. I was mm -hmm. unsure where I was with this sure. cough, whatever. Very so responsible I, of you. I was like, let me wear this damn. But I also was wearing the mask as an alert to the office when I went in so that they really took my thing seriously. Mm -hmm. So, But I was walking, walking around, and first of all, it was very difficult to breathe in it, which actually apparently is a complaint. And I was like, is this our future, walking around in these masks? I, this is so uncomfortable for me. Um, but before, I went to a conference before sort of everyone kind of decided to cancel conferences. Our conference got in under the radar, I think, which is why I was in Austin. And they were, everyone started with the shoulder bump. Like the shoulder, touch shoulder. To oh, the elbow. The, elbow. <laughs> the shoulder bump feels Sorry, really no, aggressive. The, the, elbow. the elbow. And then um, I actually personally like the foot touching. I think that's a little better. That's but what they're doing still... in Wuhan, China, yeah. I heard. Touch the foot. That's they're better. They're doing like it's very sanitary. You got I know. I know. But then the funny thing is, at some point in time, you know, I ended up having very interesting conversations with lots of lovely African-American women. And we were so affectionate with each other that up on departing, we were hugging. And I was like, oh, my gosh, we cannot help ourselves. <laughs> we're, like, we're like looking at each other, knowing this is potentially not a good idea. But we're like, I can't. I have to hug you. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, and so um, I'm but I'm not. I'm really being careful. I've you know, I've done the reading and I understand how difficult this virus is to contain. So I'm really going to be pretty good about the distance thing. I'm going to stay the, the six feet apart. I'm going to do the whole thing. And I'm going to, I cannot obviously buy all the things because they're all sold out now. I, I don't have disinfectant. <laughs> Just wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Don't spit in anyone's mouth. Just the basics. I, I, you know I asked the you question know? though, because I'm, I'm struggling. I mean, I, I'm not a touchy person, generally speaking, but I like to start every meeting with a handshake. Like, I think it really does make a kind of psychological difference. It and it's, it's struggling. Like, it, it, I'm struggling. It's hard for me to, I don't know. And plus, uh, you know, I'm not going to any conferences in the near future, but I've got travel coming up for work. And like, it's just so hard for me. This sounds so terrible, but I just feel like it's going to stymie me in my effectiveness if I can't shake hands and I can't travel. Oh, it's like, you're like Joe yeah. Biden. You don't need to touch people. You really don't. <laughs> you know what? You know what, though? You, you underestimate. Listen, we're humans. 
that that social contact is a part of it. Like I it really in in my compa- in my interactions with friends, I touch often. Shoulders, oh, I mean, I like you know puppy what I mean? with like, friends, but the difference being is that like. First of all, and I don't want to get too far off topic because I want to wrap this up, but like, first of all, in business context, like, like I said with my students, I prefer not to touch people at all, right? Um, It's the age that we're in. It's just very clear what the boundaries are. And in some ways over the last couple of years, I found that it really, it's a way to demarcate what's a friendly space versus what's a business professional space when I don't touch people. So, I mean, that's something that's, that's grown up in me now and I find it very useful. Uh, I understand. I'm not underestimating touch because, like, I I mean, I touch you two all the time. Like, I love my friends. Like, that's one thing. But I think, especially in this day and age, we need to be really careful about it. Um, Even before COVID 19, like, I think it's important that we are just mindful, um, especially because, like, we, uh, or maybe me and Trisha, travel a lot. Like, I'm very conscious about, you know, who I'm touching and putting my hands and parts on. Well, listen, I mean, it's not just about touch. Look at the French. Look at how they meet. Look yeah. at how they yeah. meet each other. Faces well, in faces. Kiss, not just the French, but all the double kisses of Europeans. They're probably, yeah. I mean, that those are all, I mean, and that's a figure, that's a part of its of their culture. What happens when they have to like engage each other in this distant space? I mean, people, you're like, oh, well, let's just not touch. But it's not just about, I mean, those are markers of our sort of cultural modes of being. And when things like this happen, it really begins to, it, it has like shift and it'll have like impact. And well, some people will feel isolated. Cause even when I came home and I said to VUL, she was like, stay in your room. And like, she locked the door and it was very isolated. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is your older sister you live with? I can understand. <laughs> yeah, she was, She's like, go in your room. Then I heard a padlock sliding into place. <laughs> so she was like, but you know what? I, I, you know, I have to say for a moment, I felt to myself, oh my God, like, like, you know, our social time of hanging out in the space together. Like, so those things are kind of, and I've heard, you know, cause think about People have asked you to self. One of the things that the CDC has asked you to do is if you have traveled is to self um, quarantine for 14 days and then and then also to do it within the context of your family home. Now, think about that logistically and how that plays out. Like, you know what I mean? Like and the affection and the so it's like there is some psychological impact of this that I think are things that people that we, we have to begin to consider, too. And when you look and see how it's ravaging the world. That that's also the trauma part of this that I think we have to begin to we'll we'll have to unpack later. <laughs> well, I, you know, and this is the last thing I'll say about it. But my, someone I work with believes that he doesn't think this is going to end the world or anything, but he thinks this is going to end handshaking as a norm in as in a, as the as a business relation norm in our country. Probably. He thinks we're going to go to like the Chinese like. Wow, yeah, I was just going to say no. I I was just going to say that I was waiting for a break. So introduce that is that uh you know let's start bowing to each other. I like it anyway. Let's just I like it better. Live long and prosper. Can't we just do that? Hand signals? I don't like no, honey, that. that's girl power. Live long and prosper is like yeah, is that. And, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Not... Is this bad for podcasting? Well, I'm just saying, I'm like, I'm just saying, <laughs> can we do hand signals? I don't like the bowing aspect. I, think oh, I like that, bowing. That, that I like bowing. I feel like the deep respect. There's yes, something really I aggressive. Listen, There's something really aggressive about making eye contact and then like. Okay. Can we then, can we, can we racialize this for a moment though? Yeah. How you gonna roll up there and bow to this white dude? Oh, that's oh, I'm not bowing to white people. 
It's got to oh, be okay. Let me be clear. You don't lower your head. There's there are ways to do it that is not. I'm just saying. You're, we they have a whole cultural history of of appropriate bowing. Their rules, all this stuff. What are we gonna do this? That's <laughs> good. I think we should do a video episode about this topic. I just, I mean, other black people, white people, will they'll get the nod. <laughs> you're like you immediately realize that bowing within certain contexts is gonna get real uncomfortable very fast <laughs> okay let's <laughs> i love that let's move on you know uh let's talk about the presidential the democratic presidential nominees now uh last year i was like i don't want to talk about it. i don't want to talk about it because i want the race to thin out a bit because i don't want to spend a lot of time talking about you know, Deval Patrick or Cory Booker, sorry, Jason, or all these people who aren't going to make it near the finish line. So now here we are. It's post Super Tuesday. There's so much I want to talk about, um, but I I want you two to go first. Uh, But, you know, where we are today is that it looks like it's going to be Biden versus Sanders. Everyone else has dropped out. Elizabeth Warren is the last to drop out and she has not endorsed anyone yet. So now people are courting her. She's the belle of the ball. Um, Except Tulsi. Is that who? Tulsi. Goodbye. She's oh, is she still in it? She's yeah, still in it. Yes, there is still a of color in the race, baby. <laughs> Good luck, Miss Gabbard. Anyway, um, so it's been a long road. And I mean, we're down to two after, I mean, how many people, Democrats are present? 600? We're down to two. So just I just want general reactions. Jason... Is this the two that you thought uh, would be here when we had like similar conversations in September? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, I don't. It's obviously not outlandish that these would be the two, but Biden, you know, has done such a poor job of running for president in the past, and this this race has had so many, you know, flubs and whatnot that I would not have predicted that it'd be him and, and Bernie. Trish. Um... I mean, I thought Biden had a strong shot. I didn't think he would finish as strongly as he has in the past um, week or so. Um, But I did think that Biden, I remember when, um, I remember texting to my friend who we talk politics all the time and I was like, Biden, it's Biden. He's the, he's obviously the middle road between all that's left here. Um, So I thought Biden would end up being, um, being, would be the closest to the nominee. Um, but I was in love with another candidate. Um, but you know, yeah. So I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not too surprised. I'm. 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 I'm somewhat gratified to see that Biden actually kind of came around in the end because I was like, well, I, I was yeah, like, I might not know America. Yeah. No, I was like, I might not know America if Biden doesn't end up because I just thought he was the natural heir. So did the, he from the field? You know what I mean? <laughs> from the field. <laughs> no, it, I would say so. Just a couple things in response to that. One is. <clears throat> It does to me, and not that this is everything, but I think it's the majority of the reason, like it really shows the strength of the Obama brand and how it is enduring in spite of the crazy moment that we're in and in spite of the whiplash we've had over the past several years. And the other thing, and I think you and I texted, uh, all of us texted about this uh, quite a bit, up until Super Tuesday, I thought it looked like Sanders was going to get the nomination. And now it that seems unlikely. Now we still have a long way to go, but now it seems like not only has Biden outlasted everyone else besides Sanders, but it looks like he's very likely to get the nomination just based on 
Sanders' performance with turnout and, and whatnot and delegate counts, like it really looks like Biden is is likely to be, and it looks a little frighteningly similar to what we saw with Hillary, which is like, well, Sanders is going to stay in it and just like suck life out of Biden. I want to I want to talk about Elizabeth Warren. I was a big Warren proponent. I still am a big Warren supporter. And I guess the question I want to hear from you too is like, how is it not Elizabeth Warren? How is it that she finished a distant third be- behind, you know, total asshole Michael Bloomberg? How is it possible that people did not coalesce around Elizabeth Warren? Where do you think she just messed up? And I know we're going to say, oh, the Medicare for all episode. Sure. But I feel like she could have recovered from that. She just didn't. And then it just all fell apart. Trisha, what happened to President Warren? I'll be honest. I don't buy the Medicare for all idea. Because I Which think part? Um, the notion that her fumbling or her clarifying it is what is what is is what doomed her. Because let me tell you right now, no one can tell you what Joe Biden believes about any of those things. So I, I really don't think it's that. Um, you know, I mean, listen, I firmly believe that in a world where Hillary Clinton, who was an obviously, objectively more capable politician and leader than Trump loses. We have to be, we have to understand that that is a world that exists. Elizabeth Warren being herself as we know it and running in 2016, I think has a has a better shot than than Elizabeth Warren in 2020. I think that this country understood that they will not line up behind a woman again. I just didn't think they were willing to take that risk. I honestly, listen, and I know people are like, oh, no, no, no. Listen, it was timing. I really believe firmly that this was timing. You had a capable person that lost to someone who had zero political skills and zero political ability. Well, I want to, I want to, Jason, I want to ask you this question, but just to push back on you, Tricia, because you've often pushed back on me. Sure. When we talked about the last election, is that yes, a woman lost, but Hillary Clinton lost, and Hillary Clinton is a, a specific woman who has a lot of history um, with Americans. So, I mean, does that translate? Do, do her challenges do you know translate directly to Elizabeth Warren? Do you know what's so interesting about that? At the time, many people said, "If it was Liz, I'd vote for Liz," and then Liz ran, and they still went for Bernie. So. I think it's a figment of people's imagination about what they would wish they would do. But when push comes to shove, they were not prepared. But I also really believe in the scar tissue of 2016. I firmly believe in the scar tissue of 2016 and the fact that it's danger zone for people and that it really is an election about who can beat Trump. Listen, the as the as the piece we said we 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 all read that piece um the new york times michelle cottle piece but i've seen it quoted elsewhere that if people could magically give the presidency to someone it would be elizabeth warren so that tells you what dynamics are at play if they wanted if they if they thought that they had to vote for the president they they picked joe biden but if they could magically wave a wand and give it to someone they picked warren so that well, that, subtle, that tells you what the dynamics are. It's about what they found, process. 
what they right. found was most Democrats said, oh, I have no problem voting for a woman, but my right. neighbor does. Yeah. Therefore, Joe Biden, I'll vote for Joe Biden because it's more electable. And that could just be bullshit, something you tell a pollster. But Jason, why won't we be enjoying President Warren? Like, where do you think she went wrong? And secondary question, will we see a woman president anytime soon? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. So here are my thoughts. First, I definitely think misogy- misogyny is a, is a, a significant part. I don't think it's necessarily everything, but there's no question that that's a significant part. I will say, and you two have heard me say this before, I have not been a fan of Warren because she. I, I find her, she comes off to me very disingenuous. Um, and I think that, you know, I agree that the one thing around re- Medicare for all would is not something that tanked her, but at for me, and I think others, it, for those of us who find her disingenuous, I know not everyone does, it seemed like another moment of, of, of that in a string of moments of that. Um, but the other thing is, I think that I think that she, we are in an age where we run to corners, and she did not fit neatly in a corner, right? Like Sanders wants revolution. So if you really don't trust the system as it is, you want to go with Sanders because he's talking about blowing everything up. If you do trust the system and you're worried about losing your, you know, employer given health care or whatever, you're going to run to Biden because he seems like, you know, he's more likely to take bring things back to what they were under Obama and not worry about, well, Warren seems like she's going to undermine things that I benefit benefit from and that kind of thing. So I just think in this race with this field, with these people, she was trying to occupy a space that it's. It's a nuanced space, the whole, like, I'm a capitalist, but I think we need major reform. Like, people who want major reform went to Sanders, and people who want, you know, capitalism as we used to know it, you know, want want a more mainstream person uh, like Biden. In answer to your last question, I've been thinking a lot about this. I absolutely think we will have a woman president. I think the challenge will be, you know, many of us, I think, believe we would never have a black president. And then in Obama, you had such an incredibly talented, skilled, genuine, I mean, just an amazing figure who was able to um, who was able to achieve that in spite of all of the reasons why that looked unachievable. I, I believe at some point we will have a female candidate that is so smart, so skilled, such a good orator, um, comes off as so genuine that she'll do it. I don't know when that will be. I think those people are, you know, literally one one in a billion but it'll happen eventually that's that's what i think i actually actually don't believe that she has to be extraordinary at all i think she just oh is that where you're dropping the mic i i i think i think it'll be i think she i mean i think this is going to sound harsh but i think if um if if she's not if she doesn't if she's not racialized in the sense that she's not a black woman then I just think it depends on the moment. Um, I think I think as black people, we know we have, have to be extraordinary. We always have to be. We have to be the best, the brightest. And I think if it's a white female candidate, I don't know if she has to be all of those things. I really don't. I don't think she has to shoot for the stars or anything. I think maybe what has to happen is she has to just be in the right moment for it. Because um, I don't think it's about capacity. I really don't believe that. I think it's about... The readiness now, did, of the country. Did you believe that five years ago, or is that something that you believe now? Uh, no, because I've worked over. I've worked with. Um, I've worked in lots of organizations, and I know extraordinary people don't always rise to the top. 
Um, so I, I, I believe it. And we know that we know the most competent person is not often who gets chosen for jobs. It's a real mixed mixture of like uh, charisma, um, chutzpah, like, you know, flexibility, adaptability, all of those kinds of things, you know, um, sometimes not the smartest. I mean, we've put up our smartest, our brightest, our whatever, and people have been really disappointed and dismayed that they've been rejected. Um, and so then it feels like um, it feels like um, competence is getting like a, a, a kick in the face. But it's clear to us, it's clear to us really that for white presidents, that's not the question. That's for white male presidents. That's not the. That's not those, those aren't the parameters. Certainly not for white male. But I mean, this white is a white woman, and this is all speculation. White... But I, mm-hmm. where I disagree with you, Trisha, is what you're saying. I agree with in terms of all the men who run, all the white men who run. But I think because of the misogyny that is so prevalent in our society for a even a white woman to be elected, I think she's going to have to be pretty extraordinary. Sarah Palin. I, w- I will people say were willing, people were willing to love Sarah Palin. That is true. However, I do think I was thinking while you were talking, I don't know if I agree with you. I need to think longer than the length of this podcast okay. about what you're saying. But I, I do think that also we have to distinguish between a woman running on the Republican ticket, a white woman and a white woman running on the democratic ticket. I do feel like the woman writing the woman um, on the Republican ticket. Something tells me that that those situations are different, and I just need to drill down into why I believe that. Because I, I think it's all- possible, and I have to tell you, even as I was saying it, I was thinking about Sarah Palin. But I, but I, you know, and this again, just speculation. But Sarah Palin, a, I think the combination of how offensive many people found her ideas and and utterances with misogyny. If she had run for president, I think she would have gotten clobbered, uh, even though she would have had a base that would have absolutely loved her. I think she would have been clobbered. And also, and I know, you, you know, vice presidential candidates rarely make a huge impact on someone's electability. But there are so many reasons why, you know, McCain picking her in a normal cycle should have meant that he had a good shot of winning. And the fact that, well, there are lots of reasons why he didn't win. But I that again, was a big one. Yeah. Selecting her was a big one. Yeah. Yeah. But but that that speaks to the misogyny argument. I just I think that mis- Go ahead. I just want to be clear that misogyny is um is racialized. And so I think the demands for Sure. What Oh, I agree uh, completely. Know, well, look, you know would it I mean? be harder so, for a black woman? Absolutely. Like, I'm oh, not Jesus. I mean, that black woman's going to have to be, yeah. I mean, she's going to have to be Michelle, Michelle Obama win. times Barack Obama to win. I, I still hope Michelle gets in the race tomorrow because <laughs> I still think she would win. I'm telling you, you know what would win? Biden, Obama, that but Biden and Michelle Obama. Right. Oh, my God. Bitch, what? I'd hang up right now and go vote today if that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> or, or Biden Winfrey. No, 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 I vote for them. I would love it. Uh, I would tap I into the ground. I'd go on beers. I'd donate. But again, you know, but one of the, I mean, listen, the thing that's so interesting about that is look at the appeal of Michelle, right? Which is a, a whole magical mixture of things. Not to say that Michelle's not capable, because as she said, she's, you know, I think she's super capable. But mm-hmm. does anyone believe that Michelle understands government better than um, um, Warren? Better than Hillary? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, do you know what I mean? So it's like, it's not about, it's not even about your understanding of the space you're entering. 
it clearly is not about that. It's something else, right? Well, it's like and you so, said, it's a mixture. And it's, yeah. it's all of that times the X factor, which yeah. is constantly changing based on the moment, highly variable based on who you are, how old you are, what race you are, where you're from, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's the X factor you can't plan for it, which is how we end up with Barack Obama for a president. No one saw that coming. Uh, we're almost out of time, but there's two like rapid fire things. Buttigieg, Bloomberg. Let's pour some wine out for them. What did you think? <laughs> what was all that about for you? Just real quick, rapid fire. Jason. Bloomberg complete demise is very similar to what, if you look at like the Republican race four years ago, which is money actually, while necessary, is not the big decider. Like people get attracted to candidates. You know, Trump spent much less four years ago than Jeb Bush and many of the other folks, most of the folks he ran against. It just shows that in the current media environment, money is not everything, which kind of goes against many of us who are horrified by Citizens United and, what, and that kind of thing. That's that's my big takeaway is like, wow, it's like really you can't buy you can't yet buy an election. The other thing I'll say is that I mean, what will be very interesting is if Bloomberg is able to effectively support Biden now in the ways he said he would support whoever the you know, whoever the nominee was. Um, that's going to be interesting of whether when you have a candidate who's already popular and you devote billions of dollars to them, can they overcome someone who has as loyal a base as Trump? $500 million. Uh, Trisha, I said I was going to ask about Buttigieg, but I want to hear what you have to say about Bloomberg. Go. I mean, I think Bert Bloomberg entered the race because Biden was faltering. I really do. And I think he was happy to retreat once it looked yeah. like Biden had gotten things. Oh, no, I never thought about that. I guess. That yeah. Well, I think that's exactly right. That's, I think that's exactly that's, right. Yeah. Wow. You, well, I should have let you go first. Jason wouldn't have, <laughs> wouldn't have had to bother to comment. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm going to, so yeah. I'm gonna, you're going to go first on Buttigieg, like Buttigieg. What was that about? Um, you know what I, you know, I have to say this about Buttigieg. Given who we have left, I think I'm shocked that I real didn't realize this, that a young, straight, white um, male did not run. Because I think his timing would have been ready. I think he would have been ready. I think they would have been ready. If he was straight? If he was straight. Because I look at the readiness, I look at how ready people were for Buttigieg, beating out Liz in moments. You know, I mean, without any of the... The, the credentials that she had. Think about that. So there was a readiness there. The, his biggest fault, fault line was how he handled um, black people and folks of color. That was his yeah. big fault line. So if you had, if you imagine somebody who had done better, I think you would have seen an amazing rise. Now I, I say this, um, I started by saying if it was a straight white male, I think people would have thought more about how his homosexuality would have played in the general which is why I said if it was a straight white male, it would have been better. Um, but um, and I think that I think black people were thinking about his electability for sure in the general, because I think black people's eyes are focused on how do you get rid of Trump. So which is why I'm saying I think that any wonderful straight white male would have had a really good shot this election. I, mm -hmm. I'm I, I now that I look at it, I was like, wow. That's a real, a real missed opportunity for someone. So Jason, Buttigieg's stumbling blocks, like Trisha laid it out, like one, gayness is up there. And then two, his handling of black people, specifically um, his own interactions with the black police chief in South Bend, where he was mayor at the time he was mayor. Um, what do you see as Buttigieg's stumbling blocks? Like how, why couldn't he approach Super Tuesday? I think he has been very savvy in this campaign. I think he was very smart to get out when he did because 
this is what I, when I think about Buttigieg, this is what I think. If he gets a, a position in the in the next Democratic administration, or any visible position where he gets to actually build some support from people of color, he will be a formidable, formidable um, campaigner in the future. Because, like, this time around, right, you could say, like, my God, he again, he was the mayor of the fourth largest city in Indiana. Like, what the fuck is that? But you look at, I mean, he's he's a very skilled orator, very skilled politician. I heard some policy people say, actually, some of his policies were quite good on climate. Um, people thought his policy was actually better than a lot of the other candidates. And he was so smart to get out when he did, because when he runs again, people will say, oh, my God, we have someone running who has won Iowa before. That is an incredible thing to say, and they won't be able to say, and he lost all these other states. He is positioning him, and he's young. He is, and so if he, you know, if he's the um, Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State or something like that and has some visible photo ops with some people of color, that kind of thing, like he will be such a strong candidate, his military record, um, how well he did in this campaign – all those skills I just mentioned, I think he's a very strong candidate for the future, and he was super smart to get out before Super Tuesday when then what would be remembered is, my God, this guy lost a million states. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, I should have thrown that to you first. God, I just messed this whole thing up today. Uh, yeah, yeah. Last oh, thing. Maybe we should submit our answers point. first. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we should do the podcast on paper and then just read from a script. Trisha, um, you had something intelligent to say about this, unlike Jason. You go first. <laughs> <laughs> last question on this, and then we'll move on to recommendations. Did you see the picture of Buttigieg in his beard? Uh, and by beard, I mean facial hair, not that he had some girlfriend. But <laughs> With a female wife. Are you... Uh, Buttigieg beard yes or beard no? Beard no. The only appeal of Buttigieg is the clean cut. Jason, beard bros. Wait, can I look it up real quick? I didn't see it. We, are you, you look it up real quick. <laughs> I'm just going to go on record saying beard yes. It really does something to his face. Like he, I immediately thought he'd be a more capable leader if he had a beard. I'm just going to well, say that. First of all, no one has – we talk about race and everything – I don't think you can win the presidency with a beard. That has never been attempted. Um, well, not in the and, modern era. A little dodgy. Right. Um, not, not not in the modern era. I mean, you had to have a beard back in the day. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, yeah. Grant since, and since Roosevelt. Roosevelt had a mustache. Since television but, yeah. started, you could not have a beard. Um, I'm looking at the pictures. I, I could go either way. Actually, the thing about the – without the beard, he looks five years old, so I do think that hurts Hello. him. So. I like the beard. I do see one picture with him with just a mustache. That has to go. He cannot oh, yeah, run. He had a porn stash. He looks yeah, just, oh my God. I just trust Chester him for a second. Yeah. I, uh, uh, just last on the, the hot topic of the beard, and I don't mean this homophobic at all. The beard <laughs> makes him look much more masculine and much more, I don't know. It just, it connotes a whole bunch of soft skills to him just by him having a beard. I'm just going to say that he should absolutely grow the beard and try and win with it. I think it would bring him. I'm telling you, there's not a consultant in the country that would let him wear that beard if he was running for president. Well, it's like the one thing. Like, he's also a gay guy. So I have to say that's and, out okay. there, but that's okay. out there. I swear to God. Last thing. And I feel like <laughs> I'm the gay guy in the podcast. And I feel like I've been raising this long. A gay guy ran for president and won Iowa. Like, 
Yeah. I think people can wear a fucking beard. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, think, I mean, no, no, but, did they know, but did they know he was gay? Some people didn't when they voted. <laughs> really? that true? Did you read about that? Some, yeah, people some people didn't. But I mean, I think, but you know what? It's like you said, Jason. I say a good, what, 12 years from now? Who knows? Who knows? He probably thinks it's another eight, but we'll see. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. let's move on to recommendations. It'll be Buttigieg needs- versus AOC. No, I'm not looking forward to that. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about that in eight years. Can Biden choose AOC? I know she's not old enough to run for president, but can you choose a vice president that's younger no. than 35? Vice presidents have an age requirement. I'm pretty certain I learned that in school, but I'll look it up while I... Not that she would ever go with him, but... Let's move on to recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Jason? So my girlfriend and I watched Killing Eve a hulu oh. series now i'm not going to recommend this series we did enjoy this series like it's good it's not great it is the 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 need for suspension of disbelief is just beyond what i'm capable of but <laughs> I, I i watched and i said you know what something tells me the books behind this are probably better so i read um kill uh no it's not killing Eve. it's um codename villanelle which is the first book and then there's a sequel i read both books and there's a third one coming out very very good author is luke jennings who i had never heard of before but very interesting he's won lots of awards really interesting varied life um but i i think the books are fantastic the villanelle books okay uh who wrote them luke jennings luke jennings i will i will share a link great trisha on a plane i saw this uh five-part documentary series on netflix it must be called who killed little gregory and it's a French true crime documentary about a child's murder. Now, apparently, in some ways, it's like um, for the French people, it's probably comparable to their John Benet Ramsey, which is like it's about a 1984 murder of a four-year-old um, Gregory Velamin, and um, it captivated the entire country. And they have never identified who murdered this little boy. But what's interesting about the story is that it just talks. It talks about like how the family had been sort of stalked for three years prior to the murder of the little boy. And it just takes you through this amazing journey of like the detectives who had been involved, the family. Um, and it's this, and it, it unpacks the entire family tree and talks about all these like family secrets that just becomes unfold. Because what ends up happening is, is that the cops initially think it's one person and then it's not this person. And they start looking around and thinking it's the family. And then eventually they turn to the mother at the last, it, it's just, it's just a series of just like poor choices. And several people ended up killing suicide killing themselves who were associated with the case, like judges. They were like haunted by the case. It was just, and I've never heard of it. Like it's this amazing sort of like French story that resonates with, I think the French that I'd never heard of. And so it is entirely fascinating to watch this thing on and watch it all unpack. What was noteworthy about it is this idea of like how the death completely sort of like destroy this tiny french town because it like arose all the suspicion amongst its members and the families it's 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 really fascinating never heard of it it's who killed gregory it's a five-parter i my flight was landing and i had to get to the last 20 minutes up and i was like did they solve it um 
I don't believe they have. I'm actually about to Google it to find out. <laughs> I think I saw something recently that said there was maybe some DNA evidence, but um, it, it's horribly tragic. Beautiful French boy, but yeah, amazing little story. Um, also, it would be tragic if he was ugly. Damn. I mean, because you know that's what part of it was, the picture, the picturesque. He was cherubic, cherubic mm-hmm. cheeks and everything. Wow. Completely compelling, though. Sounds, sounds really good. That was a great recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. I am going to recommend a book uh, called The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. Priya Parker is a consultant, and her whole thing is about creating meaning through getting people together. And I really like the book. I think in some ways it's a very simple idea spelled out over – how many pages is this? A very simple idea spelled out over 270 pages – But uh, what her thing is, is that when you are bringing people together, whether it be for a class, whether it be for a birthday party, whether it be for a funeral, to really think about why people are gathering. Um, Mm -hmm. Too often we get together. I mean, how often have you done this? Like, oh, it's my birthday. Everyone come to a bar and have drinks, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's not a lot of thought going into what are the rules of this? Who's invited? What's the space going to be like? How am I honoring my guests, et cetera, et cetera. And she brings a real intention to that. And reading this book has really made me think about the way that I do trainings, the way that um, I am in class, like the way that I gather people together. And I've started incorporating some of the stuff from the book. Like I had a game night here the other day and like set the purpose when people came in, let them know exactly what to expect, let them know what the the rules of this gathering are going to be, let them know when it was going to be over. And it went really well. Um, I like that. It's like it's that. really well, it, it sounds very proto coronavirus or pre coronavirus. <laughs> but you know the the one of the things from it that I want to highlight is that she has a chapter called "Don't Be a Chill Host," and I love this idea that we have this idea that like when people show up, it's like oh that's fine, you want everything to be okay for your guests. But what happens when that infringes upon how other guests are enjoying the situation? what happens is that it could be a bad gathering just because you don't want to be perceived as someone who has like a whole bunch of rules and da, da, da. but that's really why people are showing up. They want to have the experience and you as the guide for that experience should step up to the plate and not expect your guests to do it. Uh, it's simple. It was revelatory. Uh, so I, I really recommend you all get it. It's a really quick read. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to walk that back. It's actually a medium sized book for, um, what I'm going to say is not a lot of ideas, but she does a really good job of illustrating that over and over and over again and really driving the point home. So it's a, it's a lot of vignettes. And uh, in that way, it's very easy to, easy to read over time and especially when you're reading something else. So The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. Check out her website, priyaparker.com, actually. She um, does all these talks and everything, and there's videos up there. You can uh, see her talking about the book and her ideas. It sounds like a book about like how to be intentional about bringing people together. It's like I just find books about intentionality that take simple things you don't stop to think about and show you how to be intentional. Uh, that sounds really good too. You two had great recommendations today. Thank you. Yours was okay. I know mine was a typical like junk spy novel recommendation. You, you know what though? There's an entire section of this audience that is like furiously devouring those junk spy novels because you're recommending <laughs> them. So that's. That's fine. You can read the junk spy novel while reading The Art of Gathering. It's a really, it's not the kind of book that you have to like read like cover to cover over a weekend. Like it's just really great to sort of take it in parts, almost as if you're taking a class. 
I really enjoyed it that way. And so there we are, people. So we're back. We're going to have more episodes and keep talking. Like I said, we offer no apologies for the break. We needed it. And we're glad we're back. And we're glad you're back. And I, I mean, I hope you're back. Oh, man, what if nobody listened? Someone told me <laughs> that we hadn't released in so long that they were like, we were just, I was just going to delete you from my feed. I was like, first of all, don't threaten me. Second of all, that seems like a lot of effort. Like, just leave it. My relatives <laughs> My relatives did ask about it, so I'm sure they'll be happy to see a text in rotation. Oh, we'll see. I, I had a text during this, and someone's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm podcasting. And just said all caps, finally. That's good. That's good. We created a little anticipation. That's good. <laughs> oh, boy. And on that note, bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.